0: Welcome to the podcast of First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming and progressive Unitarian Universalist congregation, deeply committed to love and justice. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Good morning. Good morning. The hymn is
1: 209. I invite you to the song, O come, you longing, thirsty souls. Drink freely from the stream. Would you rise? Let's sing.
2: and end your hungering, why spend yourself on empty air, why not be satisfied, for everywhere a feast is spread, that's always at our side. seed within our loam, that we may bear so rich a yield as brings the harvest home. For we shall
0: Good morning. It's really really good to see all of you here and to know that there are so many folks joining us online as well. It's really good to be together. <laughs> My name's Jen Crow. I'm one of your ministers here at First Universalist. Welcome to each and every one of you. Now, whenever I am in this building, I am reminded that this building didn't start as First Universalist Church. This building, when it was built in the 1920s, was for a different faith community. Any clues you might see about what kind of faith community it was? Any clues? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jewish community? Yes, you are absolutely right. This used to be a synagogue, and it was built originally as a synagogue. What are the clues? As you look around, that, you, that help you, right? End of the pews. These are the original 1920s pews with the stars of David. I saw somebody pointing up. Up. Oh, we've got the, the air exchange grates have a star of David. They're decorative. Where else? Bottoms of the lights, right? Now, how about if you are outside of the building? Any clues outside when you're coming in? Yeah, Dave. Ooh! All right, I'm learning something I didn't know before, which I love, which is that the windows are set in a way so that when it's sunset, the light comes in and creates a glow. Amazing! Any other outside signals? All right, oops. go ahead. It looks more like a synagogue, like more of the kind of traditional shape or way of being. That's right. There's no steeple outside. There's no cross on the top if it was built as a Christian congregation initially. Back there. There Yes, there are words on the outside of the building. So if you arrive and you look up at the stairs and the big pillars at the front of the church and you look up above, there are words written there that are from the Jewish faith. So it's a way of saying, here we are. Here we are right here proclaiming it loudly and clearly for the whole community. So Adath Jeshurun was the Jewish congregation that was here for 66 years in this building. And when they built this building back in the early 1920s, they did it not only as a way of being together, but as a way of resisting the current environment that they were in. So back in the 1920s, Minneapolis was known as one of the most anti-Semitic cities in the nation. And that congregation built here in a city, like I said, one of the most anti-Semitic in the nation, in a space where black folks and Jewish folks weren't necessarily even allowed to buy property. And they built a big old building with big old pillars and words on the outside that proclaimed who they were and what they were here for. They claimed this space. Now, anti-Semitism, we know, is a form of racism, a form of oppression that means hatred or discrimination, oppression against Jewish people. And unfortunately, we are in another moment in our nation's history where anti-Semitism is on the rise. And we tell the story of this place, of claiming space, of pushing back against oppression and against anti-Semitism for a reason. We do it to remember that we are part of this line. We are part of a line of people that go back generations and generations that resist oppression and that resist racism. It's part of who we are as a part of this larger world. That's who we are and what we are about as a church. Claiming our place, claiming our space, and taking the moves that are ours to make to build beloved community. So welcome to this church. Welcome to this way of being in the world. We're so glad to be in this together. And there are all kinds of ways of getting connected here at First Universalist, ways to learn more about who we are and be part of this community. Join us on Wednesday evening for our solstice ritual. Join us next Saturday, Christmas Eve, for our candlelight service at 9.30 p.m. And then the next two Sundays, join us for one service at 10 a.m., So on Christmas Day and on New Year's Day, one service, 10 a.m. We really hope to see you there. So these are some of the ways to get connected. Here's another one. Let's arrive right now in our bodies, wherever we are. So for me, I am putting my feet on the floor. I'm noticing all the places that my body connects with the earth, with this place, And I invite us to connect with each other across space and time, across the generations with our shared breath. So if you would like, I invite you to breathe on purpose with me. Breathing in, breathing out. Breathing in, breathing out slowly. And then once more, at your own pace, breathing in and breathing out. It's from this space of connection that we remember that wherever we are, whenever we gather, We are connected across time and space through bodies and breath, water and air and land. We remember that the land we are on was inhabited for thousands of years and is inhabited still by members of the native nations. And we commit ourselves to learning the stories of all the people and beings of this land, to truth-telling and to repair. And together we light our chalice Alice, will you lead us?
3: Please join me in saying the words for lighting our chalice. Love is the spirit of its church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another.
1: This season for us is always an invitation to celebrate and commune with the darkness and the light. The next two pieces of our service are partners in the same. The second is a song, and we'll get to that in a few moments. The first is a story by the actress Lupita Nyong'o. The story is called Sulwe.
3: Sulwe, by Lupita Nyong'o. Sulwe was born the color of midnight. She looked nothing like her family, not even a little, not even at all. Mama was the color of dawn, Baba the color of dusk, and Mish, her sister, was the color of high noon. Hardly anyone at school looked like Sulwe either. People gave her sister Mish pet names like Sunshine and Ray and Beauty. People gave Sulway names like Blackie and Darkie and Night. Sulway felt hurt every time. So she hid away while her sister made lots of friends. Sulwe dreamed of being the same color as her sister. She wanted real friends, too. So she got the biggest eraser she could find and tried to rub off a layer or two of her darkness. That hurt. She crept into Mama's room and helped herself to her makeup. Oh, no. She would hear about this from Mama. Silway decided to work from the inside out and ate only the lightest, brightest foods. With a stomachache, she went to bed early and turned to God for a miracle. Dear Lord, why do I have to look like midnight when my mother looks like dawn? Please make me as fair as the parents I'm from. I want to be beautiful, not just to pretend. I want to have daylight. I want to have friends. If you hear me, my Lord, and would like to comply, may I wake up as bright as the sun in the sky. Amen." When her mama came in to wake her for school the next morning, Sulwe rose to find not a trace of daylight in her midnight skin. Solway told Mama everything. Mama asked, what is your name? Solway, she muttered. And what does it mean? Star, Solway whispered. Brightness is not in your skin, my love. Brightness is just who you are. As for beauty, Mama said, rubbing Solway's stomach the way she always did to comfort her. You are beautiful. Solway sighed. Well, you are beautiful to me, but you can't rely on what you look like to make you feel beautiful, my sweet. Real beauty comes from your mind and your heart. It begins with how you see yourself, not how others see you. Now, up you get and out you go. How could she, as dark as she was, have brightness in her? How could she have beauty when no one but her mother seemed to see it? How could she be a star? That night, a shooting star appeared at Solway's window. The night sent me, the star said, come with me. Sulway hopped onto the star, and off they went. Long ago, at the beginning of time, said the star, there was night and day, and they were sisters. They loved each other very much, but people didn't treat the sisters the same. People gave Day pet names like lovely and nice and pretty. People gave Night names like scary and bad and ugly. She felt hurt every time. Well, Night got fed up and walked right off the earth. Day stayed behind and enjoyed making everybody happy in the sun. But then Day grew too long. Day began to really miss her sister. So did everybody else. There had to be a way to get her back. Day set off to find night, and she did. I miss you, said Day. I miss you too, said night. but you don't know what it's like to be treated badly for being dark. You're right, I don't, Day replied. But what I do know is that we need you just the way you are. Come and see. Night returned and the people rejoiced. We need the darkest night to get the deepest rest. We need you so that we can grow and dream and keep our secrets to ourselves. The stars chimed in. Brightness isn't just for daylight. Light comes in all colors, and some light can only be seen in the dark. While day had a golden glow, with night, everything had a silver sheen, elegant and fine. Day told her sister, When you are darkest is when you are most beautiful. It's when you are most you. Could it be that night did not need to change? Not even a little? Not even at all? Now that night and day were back together, a little bit of night returned to day in the form of shadows, and a little bit of day returned to night in the form of moonlight. They were inseparable from that moment on, and promised to celebrate the brightness in each other, whether people chose to see it or not. You see, the star explained, we need them both on their sunniest day and their darkest night and every shade in between. Together they make the world we know light and dark, strong and beautiful. Sulwe rose the next morning, beaming. There would be no hiding anymore. She belonged out in the world, dark and beautiful, bright and strong. And if she ever needed a reminder of her brightness, she could look up at the sky on the darkest night to see for herself. Suwei felt beautiful. Inside and out. The end.
1: Uh, And just love to my friends. Cassie and Mike and Allison for, um, for the work that went into schooling and, um, and making that beautiful for us to enjoy uh, this day. Thanks. There's a song. The hymn is 221, light one candle. I invite you to rise and sing. Is that new for anyone? Oh yeah, so I mean, oh no, keep your hands keep your up. Yes, yes, look around, you are not alone. We all made it together, yes, yes. said, kept the light on a flame. I appreciate it, and beautiful, thank you.
4: Good morning, and thank you all for being here today on this bright, cold day. Uh, we hosted our Blue Holidays service this past Wednesday for all those whose holiday season is colored this year or for many years by grief or weariness. And I want to thank all the folks who attended for sharing their, uh, their, their depth with us. And I remind them and, and all of you that the ministers continue to be here for you all in all the seasons of your lives. I'll just add that weariness is the Christmas spirit. Mary was tired, y'all. That was a long journey she went on, and then in a barn, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so it is, it's okay to feel weary right now and anytime. Thank you for coming this morning, and thank you for all that you do, even weary, even in grief. It's the first day of Hanukkah, a day when prayers were answered. A rabbi who inspires me very much named Abraham Joshua Heschel once said, pray as if everything depends on God, but act as if everything depends on you. This year, as Reverend Jen mentioned, we have seen an incredibly fast rising tide of anti-Semitism. In my training for Unitarian Universalist ministry, I've often heard about our Christian roots, and that's important, that's wonderful to talk about, but Christianity has roots too, doesn't it? And in Judaism, we can take a lot of inspiration, a lot of wisdom. Even our symbol of the flaming chalice has roots in Judaism. In World War II, the Unitarian Service Committee was helping to get Jewish refugees out of Europe. And it needed a symbol to stamp on papers to make them look more legit. And a Jewish artist named Hans Deutsch, who had already fled from his homeland, designed the flaming chalice and circle symbol, part of which we still use today, which derives in part from the Jewish eternal flame, which stars in the Hanukkah story. Jewish people are among our members, our neighbors, our friends, and to all of my Jewish friends and colleagues, let me say unequivocally that I love you, I admire you, and as Unitarian Universalists, we will not stand for anti-Semitism. Let us resist it everywhere it shows its awful face and do everything we can to make sure that Jewish folks in our communities are especially loved during this time. Together we pray that the grip of addiction might be loosened, that the weight of oppression be lightened, that grief might be shared, that joy might break through, and that love might make every suffering bearable for us all. Will you join me in a moment of restful silence? Spirit of life and love, thank you for our differences, the different shades of our skin, our different religions. Thank you for all the magnificent ways of being that show just how multifaceted this world is. Help us to hold those who need healing, to protect those who are being marginalized, and help us to always keep kindled the fire of commitment and take rest when we need to in the deepest darkness. May it be so, and blessed be.
0: I'm so grateful to be right here, right now, with all of you. See, I arrived home uh, late Friday night, actually early Saturday morning, from a long week caring for a friend who is quite ill. And it was so very good to be there and to be present with her. And it was also really good to come back here and to dive in yesterday morning to the Christmas pageant rehearsal, which I tell you is a time of mayhem and joy and nerves and excitement and singing and all the things. So I tell you, come on back this afternoon. It is joy, so much joy. I knew that coming back to church yesterday and today, I would be lifted up by all of you that i'd be lifted up by the singing by the times of quiet by just getting to be together it's amazing how that works for me each and every time this is a period in my life where i am caring for beloved family members and a mentor who are living and dying with cancer it is a full time anybody who's been in moments like that with people that you love You probably already know that it's full of this both intense busyness of tending to details, getting things done, trying to get things set up, and then sitting quietly. Sitting and just being present. Being right there for those times when your loved one can be present too. It's such a back and forth of busy, 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 slow, slow, slow. So somehow in this time, as I've been sharing with friends and colleagues about what is going on in my life, they have started giving me, like they usually do, resources, spiritual practices, books that I could explore during this time. And I've got to say, they've all centered on a a theme. Perhaps you'll be able to discern it as I tell you about these books. Number one, by Jenny O'Dell, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy, which is awesome, by the way. Uh, Rest is Resistance, a Manifesto, by Tricia Hersey, which is a great book. And then, Sabbath, by Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. What's the theme here? I don't know. Rest? (laughs) Rest? Which, I gotta say, when I first began receiving these recommendations, I thought, well, thank you. This is ridiculous. I have no time to read an extra book right now. Thank you very much. Um, But these are wise ones who I listen to, and I've been digging in in different ways over the last few weeks. So I started off by listening to Jenny O'Dell's book, The How to Do Nothing, uh, Resisting the Attention Economy. There's lots of gems in there but there's one that is really stuck with me and she is reminding us of what was the rallying cry for the labor movement when they were working for an 8-hour work day and a 40-hour work week a way to be able to be present in their own lives the workers and this is the rallying cry they used the you know promotional materials all said 8 hours for work 8 hours for rest eight hours for what we will, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will, and two days off a week from paid work. This is the makings of a healthy whole life for individuals and for a community. That's what they said. And I've just been playing this in my head and wondering, what does that look like? Eight hours of work, eight hours of rest, eight hours of what we will, and two days off of paid work. What does that look like for us, and what would our world look like if that were true for each and every person? What would that be like? So I have that playing in my mind. And then I move over to Rest is Resistance, which I highly, highly recommend to you all. It's written by the author and activist Tricia Hersey. You've heard me talk about her before, founder of the Knapp Ministry. Someone who talks about rest as a way of reclaiming ourselves, our bodies, our lives. Reclaiming our dream space. And in particular, reclaiming that space if you are a person of color, if you are a black person in particular. She talks about the ways that rest was stolen from enslaved people. The ways that folks were worked beyond capacity over and over and over about the ways that rest was just not available, and the dreams and the dream space that was stolen. And she talks about how reclaiming that dream space, reclaiming rest, is a way of resisting the systems of oppression that have taken root in our country. Rest is a way to push back against white supremacy culture and against capitalism. It's a way to decolonize ourselves. This is powerful, powerful work. And for me, it's great to have big ideas like that, but it helps even more to have some practical ways I can get my hands around it or my mind around what could this look like in my life, in our lives. It could look like eight hours of work, eight hours of rest, eight hours of what we will. It could look like that. But it could also look differently if that is what is needed. When we remember that our bodies are not a vehicle for profit, right? Our bodies are divine dwelling places. When we remember that our bodies, even in this world, with so many limitations and things that push down on us, that our bodies are still our own. And how we choose to spend our time and where we give our attention is something we can have some control over. So, In the book, she tells the story of a couple of ancestors in her life, and it reminded me of ways we can resist through rest and through claiming our body and mind and space as our own. She talks about her father, her father who was a railroad worker and also pastor at their family church, both of which were really full-time jobs. She talked about how he was always there for their family somehow amidst it all, how he was always at work on time, and how he grew up hearing and passed on to her that she and he needed to work 10 times harder as a black person in order to succeed in the world, that they needed to work 10 times harder. So how could he possibly claim any space for rest in his world? He did it by, maybe counterintuitively, getting up earlier every morning. Each morning, he would be up an hour or two before the rest of the family, claiming quiet space for his own time of prayer and reflection, reading, encountering God, making space for himself and his own nourishment the way he chose every day. And then Trisha Hersey talks about her grandmother, who she spent a lot of time with as a kid, and how she would encounter her grandmother. And her grandmother would be sitting there quietly with her eyes closed. And Trisha would mistakenly think that she was asleep. So maybe she'd nudge her grandma or check in, Are you sleeping? And her grandmother would say, No, 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 I'm resting my eyes. I'm resting my eyes. And be quiet now, I'm listening. I'm listening. Ways of reclaiming space, reclaiming time wherever you are, reclaiming rest. Hearing these stories, I was reminded about the ways that I have found to reclaim space, reclaim moments for myself, to recenter especially when things are feeling chaotic or too much or I know I'm off balance. Now, some of you know that early in my recovery from alcoholism, some of the things my teachers taught me were you can actually start your day over at any point. You can actually reset yourself whenever you need to. And one of the ways they taught me to do this was, hey, if you're feeling like things are out of control or you're off on a wrong track or your brain isn't going in a helpful direction, just excuse yourself and say, I'm going to go to the bathroom. Sorry, i got to go for a minute. Nobody ever questions that. You can go take your space. And I would go in there and shut the door, and it was my space for a couple of deep breaths, my space to say a centering prayer for myself, to reset in how and who I wanted to be. Now, this is something I've done also as a parent, <laughs> I think parents know the bathroom is often a refuge, one of the few places you can shut the door and your kids are on the other side of it for a little bit. Maybe it's a shower. Maybe it's space just to take those extra deep breaths to reset and to imagine a different way forward. There are lots of ways we can do this in our lives, ways that we can claim space, take time, reset ourselves. Now, I bring all of this up today because, do you know what is a prerequisite for being able to dream? Rest, right? Like any spiritual practice, rest is something that we have to do with intentionality, with regularity, and it provides an opportunity for light to shine in on our souls. That's what spiritual practice is about. Opportunities we create for light to shine in on our souls, for deeper connection beyond just ourselves. And it doesn't happen every time. We don't get hit with a sense of blinding light or the deepness of the dark every time. We do those spiritual practices over and over because sometimes, sometimes we will dream. Sometimes our imagination will get sparked. Sometimes we will get exactly what we needed to act in the ways we hope to in the world. So rest. Rest is one of those spiritual practices that is essential if we are going to be dreaming in the dark, if we're going to be daydreaming during the light. Now, I have to acknowledge that dreaming is not always... A fun or enjoyable thing, right? Sometimes when we dream, there are scary things there in our minds and hearts and bodies. Sometimes when we are awake in the world, which is what happens when we are rested and present, when we are awake in the world or when we are dreaming in the dark, we encounter things that are more like nightmares than like pleasant dreams. Awake we could be encountering the realities of this world. The climate catastrophe, global warming, the ways that, our, that people oppress and harm each other, the rise of anti-Semitism, the continued killing of black people by the police. There are so many things that feel like a nightmare when we are awake in the world. And when we are asleep, those nightmares might come too. So this is where, again, I want to share something that's been really useful to me in those times of nightmare, whether it's awake or asleep. Now, I'm somebody who as a kid had a really hard time sleeping, and as an adult too, and I had nightmares pretty regularly, and sometimes they come back again. And for me, when I was having nightmares or when I am, it can be hard to want to fall asleep I can maybe resist going to bed far later than I should because I want to avoid what I fear is coming. Now, I mentioned this to a therapist that I had at one point, and I was sharing what one of these nightmares was in kind of detail, and they were like, great, awesome, thanks for telling me that. Now, rewrite the ending. What? said, so, no, really, let's do it right now together. Let's rewrite the way that the story ends. Let's create some agency and power for you and for the people that are around you in this dream. Let's make a different ending that helps you feel strong and present and know that you have the power to change the end of the story. So we did that. We rewrote the ending and it took some effort on my part. They kept encouraging me let go of the limitations. Go ahead, blow it up the way that you feel like this is preordained to go and have it be a story that feels powerful and hopeful. As Tricia Hersey says, hope is disruptive. Hope is disruptive. So over time, I took this practice of rewriting the end of the story or the beginning of the nightmare too sometimes. I took it into my own ability, ways of doing just by myself. So if I had a nightmare or I have one, I wake up and I do my best to write it down and then to write a different ending, right? And over time, as I practiced this and practiced this, I could actually intervene while the dream was happening. I could change the course of the dream while I was in it. And I'll tell you, that shifted everything. It shifted so much. And it leaves me thinking that if maybe one of the biggest fears or things that is so hard with nightmares is this feeling like we can't change it, like it's going to unravel or go that way no matter what, and we don't have any power. What if in our dreaming and waking times, we remembered we do, in fact, have power? There's a choice that we can make. And if the way the story is going isn't something that's good for us or for each other, we can do something to change it. And the story can go as long as it needs to until we do. I think this is an important, important thing for us to remember, Where do we have power? Where do we have choice? Where do we have agency to claim for ourselves? Now today, in particular, with Hanukkah beginning this evening at sunset, I'm reminded of the Hanukkah story. And I'm reminded of the ways that the people in that story claimed their own power, made their own decisions, and changed the outcome of the story from the expected path. So let me tell you what I mean about this. You see, for a lot of folks, the story of Hanukkah has become super simplified, right? And what it's about is the fact that a lamp was lit and it went for eight days and nights when they thought it was going to go for one. And the miracle is in the flame. The miracle is in the fact that the light went on for so very long. But for me, I am so much more interested in what happened before the light was even lit. Just like this, this moment where the candle hasn't been lit yet, the lamp hasn't been lit yet. What happened before that? So I remind us that the Hanukkah story actually begins over 2,000 years ago, in a time when the Alexandrian Empire had colonized Jerusalem. Now, I tell you, as I listen to this story again, I hear it through the lens, it's the wrong metaphor, but I hear it as if I'm also hearing about the colonization of this country and what happened here to the native people. So, over 2,000 years ago, the Alexandrian Empire colonized Jerusalem and declared that all the local religions, including Judaism, had to be rooted out. Jewish customs and celebration of Jewish rituals and holidays were forbidden upon pain of death. It was a time of religious warfare and oppression. The Holy Temple in Jerusalem had been desecrated, and many Jews turned away from their religion and traditions or practiced them in secret in order to save their own lives. There was a small band of Jews known as the Maccabees who revolted. They decided to leave Jerusalem, and they lived in the hills and the forests, and they waged a guerrilla-style war against their oppressors. It took time, but eventually those Maccabean forces did what nobody thought they could do. They defeated the oppressor, they recaptured Jerusalem, and they set out to rededicate the Holy Temple. Now, the whole Maccabean army that was left made their way to the temple. And when they got there, they found that things were far worse than they ever could have imagined. It was a waking nightmare. They found that the temple that was their holy place had been laid to waste. The altar had been profaned. The gates burned down. The courts were overgrown. The priest's rooms were in ruin. And they stopped in that moment. And they took it in. They tore their garments. They wailed out loud. They put ashes on their head and fell on their faces to the ground. They took time to feel the pain of what was right in front of them, to be Present in it. They cried out to their God. And then, then they got to work. They cleaned the temple. They rebuilt it. They consecrated the courts. They demolished the desecrated altar and built it again. They selected new priests. They restored the lamp and they searched the temple for oil. But the Greeks had defiled almost all of the oils there in the temple. There was just one bottle. That was the oil sealed by the high priest. And the thing is, they knew that once, that once that was lit, that lamp, it needed to burn without ceasing. And they knew that it was going to take more than seven days for new oil to arrive. So what were they going to do? They didn't have enough. Surely it wasn't going to go the way it needed to, and all their work was going to be in vain. But they decided to light the lamp anyway. They reimagined what the end of the story could look like. They took a huge risk. And that lamp kept burning. The temple was restored, the temple was reclaimed, that holy place. When I hear this story and remember it again, when I put it next to all that I've been reading and thinking about and living, I can't help but think, our holy temple, our bodies. How do we do that work? How do we do that work of clearing out the desecrated spaces? How do we do that part of taking out the parts that are harmful and putting them aside and rebuilding how do we light the lamp for ourselves? What are the ways we're going to claim rest as a spiritual practice so that we might not only reclaim mental and physical health or at least enhance it, but that we might also be a part of acting against the systems of oppression, awake and aware, writing a new end to the story? May this be the work and the transformation we are about. Amen. Today and every day that we gather, we make space for transformation, for participating in the cycle of giving and receiving and growing together. Today we will be sharing our offering, sharing our financial resources with Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism. Now, Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism is a powerful organization helping to reimagine this world of love and justice and creating spaces of affirmation for black Unitarian Universalists in our faith. Now, it was four years ago that we joined with Blue as our holiday giving recipient. And holiday giving is something that we do to reclaim the true meaning of these winter holidays, to say we are about transformation We are about possibility. We're about what we can do as a community, not just for ourselves alone. We gave ourselves a challenge at the beginning of this five-year partnership and said, we want to raise $100,000 for Blue by the end of five years. Here we are at the start of year four, and we have raised $83,000. So I don't know about you, but I am pretty sure we can blow this goal out of the water (laughs) this year. So I invite you to give as generously as you're able, to support Blue and the transformation of our faith and our world. And as always, if this is a time when you need to receive, know that that is holy work too. And please talk with anyone on our staff so that we can share what we have and support each other here. Our offering will now be received.
1: The day offers us another opportunity to sing together. The hymn is 225. O come, O come, Emmanuel. I welcome you to rise. I welcome you to sing.
0: every act be a prayer. May rest be one of our actions. May we take our place, claim our space, our time, our place in resisting oppression and creating the beloved community we so dream about. May it be so. Thank you for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming community that finds strength in the diversity of identities of all who find inspiration and comfort here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text FIRSTUNIV, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, 273256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.